Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. What a blessing to worship the Lord together. Now we turn to God's Word for another blessing. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And over the last three or more months, we've worked our way through the first three chapters of Ephesians, where Paul has described for us what God has done in Christ, how He's made dead sinners alive by uniting them to Jesus in faith, so that they might be redeemed and reconciled to God, and made holy in Him. And God has also gathered these redeemed sinners from every tribe and every tongue and every nation into one body in Christ, that He might dwell with them and fill them with His fullness to the glory of God forever. But now Paul turns in chapter 4 from talking about what God has done for us in Christ, now to look at how God's people ought to live because of what God has done. Now, of course, the order in which Paul talks about this is very important. He doesn't start with how we ought to live first, which might suggest that our obedience to these commands were a prerequisite for whether God might save us. Rather, God acts to save us, and then we seek to live in a manner that is worthy of God. But that doesn't diminish the importance of these commands. In fact, it elevates the importance of how we ought to live. Because as redeemed sinners, we seek to live in godliness not only because God is God and deserves our obedience, though that is true, but also because He has bought us back at the cost of the blood of His own Son so that we are now His. We belong to Him. And we are called to glorify Him in our bodies. And so because of what God has done for us, Paul now turns to talk in the second half of this letter about how we ought to live for Him as our God and Savior. So if you would read with me this morning, verses 1 through 6 in chapter 4, as an introduction, if you will, to walking worthy of God's call to us. Hear God's Word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for Your Word. How we thank You for giving it to us. And we pray that Your Spirit would continue to work through it in us this morning. We pray that Your Word would not go forth void, but would accomplish Your purposes in us this morning. Let's pray this for Christ's name. Amen. As a child studying history, there are certain figures that seem to capture our imagination more than others. 
And as a young boy, one of those figures for me was certainly Teddy Roosevelt. You've got the Rough Riders charging down the hills of Cuba, expeditions to the Amazon, and a bold presidency, courage, energy. And of course, if the traditional lore is true, the namesake of the teddy bear. How much more could a man fire a boy's imagination? You know, Teddy Roosevelt didn't rise to public service from nowhere. For generations, the Roosevelt family was a a prestigious family, playing a a prominent role in the life and the politics of New York. And the Roosevelts felt that their name and their situation came with a responsibility. In his biography on the Roosevelts, David McCullough puts it this way. He said, they were Roosevelts, but being Roosevelts in itself was not enough. Duty and the family name demanded more. In other words, if you were born a Roosevelt, you had a duty to act and live in a manner that was worthy of the name. It meant hard work. It meant charity and giving back to their community. It meant living with virtue and social grace because of who they were. And this wasn't elitism. It was about being responsible with what they were given. And in many ways, Paul is saying the same thing here to the Christians in Ephesus. As he writes to the Ephesian believers, he says, You belong to Christ. You are His people, saved by His grace for fellowship with Him. If that is true of you, just calling yourself a Christian is not enough. That name, that name comes with a responsibility to walk worthy of the calling you have been given in Jesus. And what I'd like to do in our time this morning is introduce Paul's call to walking worthy And then look at the first main way that Paul calls us to walk worthy in this passage. So let's start with Paul's summons to walk worthy of our calling. And maybe this is obvious, but when Paul talks about how we're supposed to walk, he's not talking about our gait. He's not talking about how we proceed down the sidewalk. This word walk means how we live. He's talking about our pattern of life or the habits and patterns that shape us that determine how we respond in individual situations. And this is going to be a a dominant theme over the next two chapters. Four more times in chapters four and five, Paul's going to talk about how we are to walk if we are God's people. And so, as we look at Paul's summons this morning, calling us to live in a pattern of life worthy of God's calling, maybe the first question is, well, what exactly is God's calling? If we're going to walk worthy of it, we have to know what it is. And when Paul talks about our calling here, I don't think he's talking about our salvation itself, but what God has saved us for. What has God called his people to do and to be if they are his? I think of the way Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 1.9 when he says, and God has saved you and called you to a holy calling. What is that holy calling? Paul's referenced it repeatedly in Ephesians. He says that God has saved his people to be part of one united community of his people who will be holy and filled with the fullness of God, who will dwell in fellowship with God forever to the glory of his name. God, of course, has called us to to good works and to evangelism. He's called us to be instruments in helping each other grow in holiness. But we do those things Because of this purpose God has given us, we are called to be His holy people who will dwell with Him and magnify His glory forever. 
Just stop and think about that for a minute. And think of who you and I are. God has called us, sinners, to dwell with Him, to be holy, to be His people who will magnify His glory forever. What a calling. But if God has saved us for such a purpose, then we ought to live in a manner that's worthy of or fitting for or suitable for that calling. I was thinking about this this week. I remember there was a time in in college I was asked with a small group of students, maybe a dozen or so, uh, to come to an hour with Clarence Thomas, my own hero on the Supreme Court. And this didn't happen, but you can always imagine. What if Clarence Thomas had looked at me and said, Chris, I have a job for you. I want you to date Constitutional Law 400 next semester, and then, and then I want you to come and, and join me as an underclerk to help me with my, my work on the Supreme Court. Well, that would have been a dream. You know, what would I have done? Well, I would have changed my schedule. I would have dropped some extracurriculars. I would have studied with extra diligence in that class. I would have rearranged my life to complete this job that Clarence Thomas had, had given me. Well, if I would have done that for him, how much more when the God of the universe shows up and redeems us from our sin through the blood of Jesus, his son, and says, Chris, I have a calling for you to be holy and to be part of this one new people of mine, my church, who will dwell with me and magnify my glory for all eternity. How much more should our lives be reoriented and reprioritized to live in a manner that's worthy of and fitting for this calling he has given us in Christ? Well, how do we do that? How do we walk worthy of this calling? Well, over the next two chapters, Paul's going to identify two main categories, if you will, of how we are to be worthy of this calling. We ought to live in unity with one another as fellow Christians, since God has saved us to be one body in Christ. And we ought to live in holiness, since God is preparing us to dwell with Him forever. Unity and holiness are these two things that Paul identifies as part of walking worthy of our calling. So this morning we'll start where Paul starts, with unity. Paul begins with this exhortation by listing five qualities that ought to be true of us, that are true of walking in a manner fitting for our unity and peace as God's people. And you see that list in verses 2 and 3. Paul begins by saying that we walk worthy of this calling by living with all humility and gentleness. And many of you probably know Philippians chapter 2. You might have even memorized some of the verses there where Paul defines humility as considering others more important or more worthy of our attention than ourselves. Humility is that constant battle against our tendency to filter everything through our own best interest and to turn attention back to ourselves. You know how conversations go, right? Where, where somebody's sharing a story about themselves and our immediate thought is, well, let me share a story about me. And we, we have that tendency to filter everything through our best interest. That's the opposite of humility. Humility is a call to fight against that. And it is a genuine commitment to focus on others for their good. C.S. Lewis has famously said that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. In other words, In humility, we don't think poorly of ourselves. We're just not thinking about ourselves at all. 
because we are genuinely focused on others and thinking about them and their good. It's humility. Then Paul says that we should walk with gentleness. To be gentle is not to be weak or light-handed. John Stott, I think, puts it well when he says gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is the quality of one who is strong yet master of himself and the servant of others. Maybe imagine an Olympic wrestler wrestling on his living room floor with his four-year-old. And you have a picture of strength under control as he is gentle in order to draw near to his son and to serve him. The old preacher John Bailey in his diary of private prayer prayed that he would have the tenderness to care for those who are weaker than himself. That's a prayer for gentleness. Gentleness is a pouring out of our strength in proper measure, without grudge, without exasperation, in order to serve and care for one another. Well, then Paul prays that we ought to walk with patience, bearing with one another in love. What's patience? That's a word we use often. Patience, I think, means being willing to suffer the faults and annoyances of others with peace and joy because we have the long view in mind. You know, as a parent, we at least try to have patience with our maybe three-year-old. And how do we do that? Well, we look at the three-year-old, we know their age and their stage of life, and we have the long view in mind. And so we bear patiently with them. But think, as you look at your fellow believers, maybe around the sanctuary this morning, maybe as you interact with other believers you know, when we look at them, we are to see them for who they are, our brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow citizens of heaven. And we're to remember what God is making them into. Citizens of heaven who will be perfected in holiness and glorified with us in Christ. If that is who they are, and if that is what God is up to, what's putting up with a few hurts and annoyances and frustrations for a few years in between? That's patience as we keep the long view in mind. And I think godly patience is rooted in the honest assessment of ourselves, isn't it? The honest assessment of how much God has put up with in us and His willingness to continue to draw near to us despite it all. And it determines to treat one another with the same measure of patience that God has shown to us. And then Paul lists bearing with one another in love. This speaks to that mutual tolerance of one another's oddities and sins. It's a willingness to draw near to one another despite each one of our undesirable qualities. Because of love. Because of a commitment that we've made to one another for each other's good. Just as Christ has committed himself to us and given himself up for our sake. We bear with one another out of love. Now, of course, these virtues that Paul mentions reflect the character of Christ himself, don't they? This is who Christ was to us, and we're called to live like this toward one another. And of course, this is going to impact all of our relationships. If we live with these qualities, that will impact our marriages and and our relationship with our spouse. It'll impact how we treat our children or how we treat our parents. Or how we treat one another as classmates and co-workers. But Paul's key point here is that walking with this manner of life enables us to live together as God's people, as God's church, as is proper, the one united people of God that we're called to be. 
But then Paul ends his list by speaking to our desire for unity. You see it there in verse 3. He charges us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul uses a word here to refer to something precious to us that we would have a natural zeal to protect. I remember getting the engagement ring that I was going to give to Kate. And I remember how I treated that ring between getting it and giving it to her. And that's a valuable thing. As a college student, I'm certainly not going to be able to afford another one if I lose it. It was significant because the stone was from a ring of my great-grandmother's. It was valuable because of what it meant to seal our engagement. And so what did I do? Well, I walked around with it in my pocket, and I checked my pocket every 30 seconds, even though there was no way it was going to fall out. There was a, a natural zeal to protect something that was valuable and precious. And I think that's the, uni- the zeal that we are to have for our unity and peace and fellowship with God's people, who we are bound to by God's Spirit to guard and protect our fellowship and peace with one another. And maybe that's really the crux of the matter for us this morning. Do we see peace and unity with each other as God's people? And not just one another in the pews, but our fellow believers at the other end of our building, at the other end of the world. Do we see that unity and that peace as something valuable, as a priority that God has given us? Do we desire it because God has desired it? Do we pursue it because God has called us to it? Or do we see fellowship with God's people, maybe particularly those who are different than us, as an optional extra that we can pull back from if it gets awkward or painful or difficult? Do we see the bond that we have together as God's people like Velcro that can be done and undone and reapplied wherever is most convenient? Or like Gorilla Glue that binds us together to one another in the one Spirit of God who dwells in us together and can only be broken with great cost and pain. Paul calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But notice then, as you look to verses 4 to 6, that Paul doesn't just list these qualities and this desire out of some good will or something that should generally be true of us because it's a good idea. In verses 4 to 6, he reminds us of why we ought to walk in unity and peace as God's people. He reminds the Ephesians that in Christ, they have a sevenfold unity that binds them together. Now, many of you know that numbers are significant at times in Scripture and that the number seven often marks wholeness or perfection. And I believe that what Paul is describing here is the perfect, whole, sevenfold bond that exists among God's people. They are one body, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, who have been reconciled to each other and one united people of God. There is one Spirit The very same Holy Spirit of God indwells every single believer, binding us to one another and empowering our fellowship together. We are called to one hope. We're all looking forward to the same event, the return of Jesus, who will bring us into fellowship with Him and with the Father in the Spirit and the new heavens and new earth forever. We share that event we are looking ahead to. We have one Lord. We belong to the same Master We serve the same Lord who is the same Savior who calls us to the same task and goal and calling. 
We have one faith and one baptism. Because the name of Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. So we are all saved by the same faith. A trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. And we've all been given the same sign in baptism as a picture and a guarantee of the promise that in the blood of Christ we are washed and made new. And we have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So how can we casually separate ourselves from one another, elevating our preferences and our rights and our reputations and our conveniences over one another when we live under one God who is over all and through all and in all? I think it's so easy for us to think of the church the way we think of our friendships. It's great, it's worth pursuing, but when things get difficult, it's easy to move in other directions. But that's not who we are as God's people. We have a calling together as one body, and we are to live worthy of that calling. And so Paul rests his case, showing how, how to live in unity with one another, in humility and gentleness and patience, forbearance with love, eagerness for unity and peace with each other, and showing why we ought to be so eager for that unity because of the sevenfold bond between us as one body in one spirit with one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all. And so the key question for us this morning is are we walking worthy of this calling? Do we have this desire that God calls us to? Now at this point, we should probably pause And remember that unity is not the absolute principle. As we walk in this world, there are things that should separate those who claim the name of Christ. And this is a grief to us. Well, we expect that there will certainly be some matters of application that Christians will come to different conclusions on and disagree on. And those should not break the fellowship in the church. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 8, even if we're positive, we're right about these issues, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up as we set aside our conclusions for the sake of our fellowship and unity and peace together. But there are some other issues central to the character and work of God and Christ and clearly laid out in God's Word where error should lead to division. And we should not sweep them under the rug of the facade of unity. 1 Corinthians 5, for instance, Paul tells the church to put out from our midst those who live in open, unrepentant sin. And 2 John, John tells the church, do not receive into your midst those who do not follow the teachings of Christ. I think we got an example even this week of how this can be misapplied. Many of you know that a number of the Catholic bishops in the United States have recently argued that Catholic politicians openly supporting and working for abortion rights should not be allowed to come to communion at the Lord's table. They should be denied communion. And these bishops are right. Because while there is always grace for those who have sinned and repented, Receiving communion is a sign of good standing in the presence of God. And you cannot actively work for and desire the universal right 
to kill young children who are made by God in his image and pretend to stand in good standing with God at the same time. But this week, the Vatican wrote to these bishops, and they told them that they should not pursue this policy. And their reason? They said this would be controversial and it would hurt unity. But do you see how we can misapply unity? See, that is giving unity a role it ought not play. For unity, true unity and peace and fellowship among God's people presumes a shared commitment to the truth of God's word and the fundamentals of the faith once delivered to the saints. It's with that commitment that we pursue our fellowship together across differences in divides and hurts. But while we, while we, while we make that point clearly, I think it's so important for, all, for us also to recognize Paul's main point. That here in this passage, he calls us to place a higher value than we often do on walking with humble love for one another for the sake of fellowship and unity in Christ. So as we come to the end this morning, let me conclude with one key takeaway for us this morning. And that is this. True Christ-like community will often be far harder and far costlier than the easy community we can find in many other places. Author and Pastor Paul Miller says, you know, it's actually quite easy to form a community. All you do is find people who are like-minded and like the same things as you, and presto, you've got a group. And if at any point you find a difference, that's okay. There's plenty of other opportunities to look for other people who are like-minded and form a new group. But that leads to cliques and to tribes. That's not spirit-empowered community in Christ. I remember a testimony at a funeral here at Westminster eight years ago, in which a friend got up and said, you know, we are the most unlikely friends. We are totally different in every way from totally different backgrounds. The only thing that could have possibly brought us together in friendship is Jesus. That's that's Christ-like community. I think of the unexpected blessing that I have had, even, even yesterday, as I sat in a room with fellow believers from Burma, and I've sat in a room with believers from the UK and Korea and Africa, and find the unique joy of sharing a common testimony that we are each sinners, but Christ has died for us and called us to Himself to fellowship together in Him. That kind of fellowship takes work and commitment. It's harder than the group of like-minded people who like the same things we do. But that is our calling. And it is far more beautiful and God-glorifying than the easy fellowship we often pursue. Of course, there's plenty of things that Satan can use to try to break this peace and unity among God's people. I think Satan sometimes uses our apathy. Apathy about our fellowship with God's people. And that comes when we just don't have that strong of a desire to form new friendships and fellowship with other believers in Christ. Apathy comes when we have our friends. We're not really looking for a bigger community. And so we circle up with those we know and are secure and comfortable with instead of looking for others, looking for visitors, looking for other believers to welcome them into relationship. One author countered this apathy by suggesting that on any given Sunday morning, God's people should first look for any visitors to the church, then should look for anyone standing by themselves And only if they have time left at the end should they turn to talk with those that they know. Now, why would we do that? 
Well, it's not just because we want to have a really great welcoming church. We do want to be welcoming. But we would do that because we are united together with every fellow believer in Christ in the church, which is far bigger than Westminster Presbyterian Church. We have a future together in fellowship with God with them. So out of humility and love for them, we long to look out for them and welcome them into relationship, to watch out for their interests in a way that reflects the bond that already exists between us as God's people. So may we not be apathetic about the beauty of the calling to fellowship with God's people, all of them. Satan, of course, can also use disagreements over secondary issues to divide God's people. Whether it's issues of of politics or, or of other life applications, it is easy to feel so strongly about certain issues that we begin to otherize those in the camp opposite us. And of course, in politics and in other application, there are those issues that are biblically essential. But I think this past year has shown us a host of divisions that come between those who share a commitment to the same biblical worldview. And the danger is that we can begin to view those who come on an opposite position of us as deluded at best or on the other side at worst. And how do we have fellowship with God's people when we see them as on the other side? Of course, there's real issues to be discussed. Of course, some positions may become ungodly. But while we discuss them from our shared biblical worldview, we must not give Satan the satisfaction of seeing us divided, of seeing each other as on the other team when we are one in Christ. But of course, the greatest danger to the unity and peace of God's people is always just our plain everyday sin. We say things that are foolish. We post things on social media without considering their impact. We're ignorant, self-absorbed, or just plain different so that deep fellowship is difficult. And the gap in understanding and the frictions of sin open small wounds that lead us to withdraw, like Velcro, for our protection and comfort. And when that happens... I think Paul is calling us to remember the fact of our unity. We are one in Christ who died to make us one with himself and with each other. He's calling us to remember our calling in Christ, that we will be united in holy fellowship together with God and with one another forever. We're called to imitate our Savior in a Christ-like community characterized by tenderness, love, and sacrifice for one another across differences. We are called, brothers and sisters, to a community that's not marked by just one or two significant decisions, but by a thousand mini-deaths to ourself as we walk worthy of this calling for the sake of one another and the peace of Christ's body. After all, the whole point, isn't it, that Christ has died for me and for you, that Christ has died for believers in Lancaster and in Laos, Christ has died for those very similar to me and those very different than me. And when Christ died to make us His, He gave us His Holy Spirit who approaches us with infinite power to change us and to fit us together for our calling. To be part of the one holy people of God who will dwell in fellowship together with God to display the glory of God forever and ever. And if God has given us such a glorious calling, 
We ought to eagerly desire to walk worthy of it with each other by the power of the Spirit day by day. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank You for what You have done for us in Christ. How we thank You for what You've done for each one of us in shedding Your blood to forgive us of our sins and to redeem us and reconcile us to Yourself. But how we thank You for what You've done in us together in all of us together this morning, but in all of us as your people across the centuries and around the world, that you have brought us to yourself and reconciled us to one another and given us this future and this purpose that we would be united together as your people to dwell in holy fellowship with one another and with you to the great glory of your name. Would your spirit enable us this week to walk worthy of that calling in humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another with love, with a zeal to maintain the unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace with one another. And would you be glorified through it? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.